You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you further. You step forward little by little, not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls, calls you to enter in to deeper waters. and welcome to the Deeper Waters Podcast. I am Nick Peter, seeking to bring you the very best in Christian scholarship and apologetics. And today, we are stepping into our time machines and we're going back and looking at the Gospels. Are they really reliable accounts? I mean, we have people on the internet who uh, give us many strange ideas about the Gospels. Some go with the whole extreme. Jesus never even existed. But even those who don't say, well, they're not by contemporaries. And they don't even have names attached to them. They're anonymous. And they're biased. They're late. So they can't contain eyewitness testimony. These can seem daunting if you're unfamiliar with them. But would they hold up a scrutiny even more? Would they hold up in a court of law? Well, a book has been released recently called In Defense of the Gospels, The Case for Reliability. And the author has been on our show before, and I've decided to have him come back on. He's a, a lawyer with an education in AA from Santa Ana College, a BA in Biblical Studies at Biola University, and an MA in Theological Studies at Talbot School of Theology, and a, a JD in Western State University College of Law. He's Professor of Law and Apologetics at Simon Green University from 1980 to 87 and been Assistant Dean of a Law Program there from also at 86 to 87. Co-host of the Bible Answer Man nationally syndicated radio show from 86 to 88. Host of uh, John Stewart Live, KKLA Los Angeles, 1988 to 92. Attorney at Law Partners Stewart and Stewart, Orange Cow. California, 1990 to present, host John Stewart Live, USA Radio Network, and CBN Radio Network, 1992, 93 lecturer, New Life War, um, 2014 president, visiting professor at uh, Joe's Nigeria Vineyard Academy. Okay, I'm getting this jumbled up, but he's got a whole lot, and now he works with Rashio Christie as uh, visiting scholar. I hope you don't mind me just summing things up there again, Sean, but uh, welcome back to the Deeper Waters podcast. Hey, Nick, it's good being back, and I appreciate what you're doing to provide scholarship that's accessible to everybody that makes these issues uh, come alive and so people can work through them. Thank you very much for that. Now, if my audience doesn't know much about who you are and they don't remember you from last time, tell us a bit about how you got to be doing what you're doing. Well, for me, Nick, since I came to Jesus back in uh, 1970, I've been very interested in not only what Christianity teaches, but why we believe that Jesus lived, died, and rose from the dead. What's the evidence? And in, in my journey, I not only got my degrees in biblical studies and theology, but I went to law school 
I wanted to study evidence and I wanted to find out how could you make a case for Christianity. And that's become more and more important as it seems like the world is getting more secular. The university campus is becoming a, a, a seedbed for doubt, unbelief and anti-Christian sentiments. And so much of it is beyond the pale that it's just not rooted in any type of scholarship, but just based on Internet rumors, etc. Yeah, so uh, my love for uh, defending the faith really flows from my own experience, starting early on reading books like Josh McDowell's book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, and realizing this is not like in some metaphysical subjective realm. We're talking about the fabric of history, that there was a man named Jesus who claimed to be God in the Mm -hmm. flesh and demonstrated it by the miracles he did and his resurrection from the dead. So uh, Christianity is rooted in history. It's rooted in fact. And then as I was thinking about what book would uh, should I write? I wrote a book last year that came out that has to do with uh, Christianity and Islam and how Jesus is more than a prophet. But I thought, let me write a book about why the Bible is reliable. And that seemed to be way too broad. So I thought, well, what about the New Testament? And that was even broad. So I thought, here we go. Did Jesus say and do the things that are recorded in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? And so I set out to write this book based on wanting to present the research and the conclusions I've come to after studying this for over 40 years and hoping that uh, people, especially university students who are being challenged, will grab a copy of this, Mm -hmm. understand the facts and the information that support that the Gospels are indeed reliable historical accounts of the life and teachings of Jesus. Well, as I'm looking here at the book and I'm seeing your description on my back, I have a question pop in my mind that so many people I'm sure wonder, Lacey, is is it really possible to be a lawyer and a Christian both? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, a lot of people talk about that, that honest lawyers, a contradiction, crooked lawyers, uh, a redundancy. So we do get all those jokes, <laughs> and probably well-deserved, Nick, although there are some lawyers who are good guys, and uh, my wife and I are both lawyers. We're actually both allied attorneys with the Alliance Defending Freedom, and we're happy to work with trying to promote religious freedom and keep a level playing field in America, and even other places, parts of the world. We get to lecture in lots of uh, schools in various countries, and it's always exciting to uh, Talk to them about the freedoms we share in America. Yeah, I, I don't mind the lawyer jokes. I find most of them being very funny. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm saying both of you are lawyers. Those must be some very interesting arguments you have at times. <laughs> well, I can tap into my uh, courtroom experience also because a lot of people who are Christians who write about Christianity, they'll write books having to do with evidence for this, evidence for that. Yeah. And they'll talk about like the case for, well, there are too many people who are actually doing apologetics, who actually are lawyers, who actually have had to make cases in court. So I think maybe I am one of the few uh, who actually does apologetics, but actually can do a case both in the courtroom and also in the courtroom of public thinking. Mm-hmm. And I think the latter is even more important because I'm trying to reach people's minds as well as their hearts to let them know that Christianity is not only credible, but the evidence is so overwhelming that a thinking person should want to consider why Christianity not only has survived, but is flourishing. 
and why it has so many credentials to demonstrate its authenticity. Okay, well, John, you know I'm all about a strong evidential case for what I believe and such, and we've had many great shows on there. I'm sure you're well aware of that. What makes an evidential case for the claims of Jesus and the gospel is different from a legal case? Different from what now? Different from a legal case. Uh, well, in, in some ways, it, they're actually parallel because what we're really trying to do is to convince a hearer, the trier of fact. Let, let's take a courtroom example. In a courtroom, some countries only have a judge sitting in as a trier of fact. In America, we have the jury system. So typically, you'll unpanel 12 people and they'll listen to testimony. And it's their conclusion based on admissible evidence that determines the verdict. And verdict is an old word that means to say the truth. Well, when it comes to Christianity, if we look at Jesus himself or the life of the Apostle Paul, they're presenting truth claims. They're presenting issues that are contested by non-Christians and secularists. The difference, though, is in a courtroom, you may have a monetary verdict in favor of either a plaintiff or defendant. In a criminal case, you may have a conviction or an acquittal. But in the case of Christianity, this is about eternity. So we're trying to persuade people about the truth of the gospel, that Jesus did die for the sins of the world and rise from the dead. But the consequences are vastly beyond what you find in a courtroom. This has to do with someone's eternal destiny. So it's similar techniques because we use both direct and circumstantial evidence. We use argument, not being argumentative, but being using reason and logic and persuasion. And this, to me, is the biblical model. If you look at how the Apostle Paul went around, especially in places in Asia Minor, the, uh, places like Corinth and Greece, he would reason with them from the Scripture, and he would persuade them. He would give them facts that Jesus rose from the dead. So what we're doing in a courtroom by presenting a case, by trying to persuade people, is exactly what the Bible calls Christians to do, to persuade our friends and neighbors of the truth that we believe in, that Jesus is the way to God. Now let's start looking into the book here, okay? The first section you got is about when the Gospels were written. And this is one of my favorite things to talk about, because so many times you hear us like, for instance, the Gospels aren't contemporary accounts. And second, you hear where, geez, if all this stuff going on was so important, why didn't someone just write it down immediately? Well, they may have, and there's a lot of speculation about whether there's a source that might be underlying uh, Matthew and Luke called the Q document or the source document. Mm -hmm. We don't have any record of that in history. No one talks about it. There's no hard copy of anything like that, but it's more than possible that there were contemporaneous writings. But beyond that, this is was actually a very oral culture, and only maybe 10% right. of the people at the time of Jesus were literate. So people memorized things, and Jesus taught in ways that they could be easily memorized. That's why we find, for example, one of the earliest creeds is what's found actually in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses mm -hmm. 3 and 4, about Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. These could be easily memorized to, in essence, give the heart 
of the Christian message that anybody that uh, probably over about the age of five could memorize that and remember it. You didn't have to read. You didn't have to be a theologian. And in this culture, that's how they kept track of things. But it wouldn't have done us a whole lot of good if there was merely oral tradition and there was no written record by people who were eyewitnesses or primary sources. So I think God in his wisdom had the people who actually were there or interviewed the people who were there write these things down for posterity. So it's one thing to say that three to five or ten years after the time of Jesus, they had a very clear understanding through uh, the memorization of Jesus' teachings that could be passed along, but that doesn't help us today. That's why these things, these accounts of Jesus' life and teachings were written, and they could have been contemporaneous with the time of Jesus or shortly thereafter, but we have them close enough to the events that there's no comparison to any other works of history. So uh, we really have a, a great candidate and reliability when we look at the gospel record. Yeah, I often tell people when they ask about that kind of question, say, look, back in Jesus' time, you had two ways you could share something. One was to write it down. This was costly because you had to buy all the materials. It took a lot of time because you had to write it up by hand. And it could only reach directly the people who could read, which even saying 10% of the population, I think, is being generous. Those would have to read it to everyone else. So you got a way that's expensive, takes a long time, and reaches a few small people. Then you have the oral tradition. It was pretty much instantaneous. It was free. And it could reach anyone who could speak the language. Which route are you going to go with? Yeah, all that true. I, I agree with that. Mm -hmm. The oral presentation of information was how it was done at that time. Mm -hmm. But to maintain a, a record for posterity, these same eyewitnesses. And, and I don't know if you'll get to it in terms of your questions, but, of course, in the book I talk about, you know, what what's the latest date some of these uh, Gospels accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, could have been written? And was that close enough to the events that the writers – could have remembered these things. And, and I point out that, for example, we're, we're talking about this in, in June of 2018, and so it was almost 17 years ago that 9-11 happened. I bet everybody listening remembers where they were when 9-11 happened. And oh, yeah. just, it, it's like a snapshot. Mm -hmm. And as I put in the book there, the, the more uh, unusual an event and the more emotional it is, our brains have the capacity to almost take a snapshot. So, for example, if I asked the audience, do you remember uh, when, if, if you're a lady, when your husband proposed to you or when the, your first child was born? Yeah, everybody remembers that. I go back far enough to remember exactly where I was, what I was doing when President Kennedy was assassinated November 22nd, 1963. And that was, yeah. what, 56 uh, years ago, 55 yeah. years ago. Yeah. So if the gospel were, you know, later than than 40 or 50 or 60, it really it really doesn't matter from the standpoint of if these were eyewitnesses uh, and there were eyewitnesses still around when these documents were written, regardless of who you believe wrote them. These are very close to the source and, and compared to other literature of the time, uh, really the type of material that you would rely upon as being accurate uh, reflections of what tr truly took place. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I was thinking when you're talking about remembering significant events, I could say, for instance, um, John, do you remember what you were doing on July 24th, 2010? July 24th, 2010. What, yeah. what was I doing then? Yeah, do, do you remember? <laughs> I could. You Is don't? that when we had an interview? Before? Nope. Nope, we better now have had an interview. Was that when you got married? That's when I got married. Ah, there you yeah. go. I mean, you see, for, for you, you now. You didn't that, What? See, the thing is, for you, you that day doesn't. That day, sorry, there seems to be a lag here. For you. You don't need to have somebody write down what this. Yeah. For you, July 24th, 2010 was just another day on the calendar. For me, that's a day that's etched into my memory for significant reasons and such. And I think we could say that if the accounts of Jesus and the Gospels were true, chances are people are going to remember a lot of things he did. Yes. And, and that that helps address the general issue of uh, you know when the gospel is written and how relevant even that question is. Mm -hmm. But as I point out in the that even the most skeptical scholar will have John writing right toward the end of the first century. Yet we have contemporary uh, church fathers who say that John lived to the turn of the first century. So he was probably alive around the year AD 100. Uh, even, even if the Gospel of John was written as late as AD 95, he could have certainly written it. And there certainly were eyewitnesses, regardless of whether it was John or Luke or whoever, but there are eyewitnesses who were still alive when uh, the Gospel of John was written, and even assuming the latest date. I also think that there's tremendous evidence to show the Gospel of John was written before the fall of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. Yeah. And one example is, is, is John chapter 5, verse 2, where mm -hmm. it says there is a, a, a gate in Jerusalem, a sheep gate. Well, after A.D. 70, that didn't exist. And as I put, quote in the book that uh, Greek scholar Dan Wallace, by the way, my former classmate in college, but Dan Wallace says, no, that's, that's not a, a historical present where you're talking about something that has already occurred. This should be taken as present tense. So at the time, John chapter 5, verse 2 was written, it was still standing before A.D. 70. So there's evidence internally within the Gospel of John that probably could be used to push the date back before 1870, perhaps into the late 60s, and that's only 30-some years after the time of Jesus, and that would be the last gospel written. But again, uh, even taking the latest date, it doesn't affect the reliability issue because uh, there's just so much evidence to support these accounts being historically reliable. And just a one point on sable clarification. I, I don't think it's the sheep gate you have in mind. I think it's the poor Bethesda you have in mind that had the five porticos on it. Uh, yeah, it's Solomon's porch. That's what it was. Yeah, I think you're right on that. Solomon's portico. Yeah. But the gates, what I think what, what we're talking about, though, yeah. they're talking about a gate there. Yeah. Maybe. Anyway, um, I'm also thinking about the point made about how we can memorize things. I mean, back then, that culture was very much into memorization, but we can still have some of that today. I and mean, if we're talking together sometime, you and I are like out at a restaurant together, and our wives aren't there, and you tell me a joke, 
And it's the only time you tell me that joke. Because chances are you're not going to tell me the same joke three or four times at a restaurant. I can go home and say, Honey, you have to hear this joke John told me. And I'm probably not going to say it word for word exactly like you did, but I will tell the same joke that you did, essentially. Right, right. I, I remember jokes from that were told me when I was like seven or eight years old. I still remember them today, some of those corny little ones that we heard. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and the question, a question of whether we remember it and recite it word for word is an interesting question. Yes. There, there's a technical question about the Gospels as to whether they contain the authentic words of Jesus or the authentic thoughts of Jesus or the authentic voice, we would say. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's technical terms for this called ipsissima wax or ipsissima verba. And ipsissima verba means it's the authentic words. Now, you certainly have an issue that comes up as to the fact that Jesus apparently spoke Aramaic, but all of our copies of the New Testament are written in Greek. So we apparently have translations done by the writers of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, It doesn't necessarily defeat the idea of the authentic words of Jesus, because I just from a historical perspective, I think you can certainly translate things from Aramaic into Greek and do it accurately, but there is some fluidity in how one translates. But at the very least, you have the authentic voice of Jesus, which means it's like telling a joke, and you have the same point, the same punchline, you know, it, it, you make it the same way, and the words themselves are a vehicle to convey the meaning, the voice within that, and certainly that's the very least you could say happens with the gospel accounts. Mm-hmm. Now, the next section you've got here when you get to is about who wrote the gospels. And again, this is a favorite one that so many skeptics like to get on and say, the gospels are anonymous. You know, Nick, that was actually the issue on the internet that for me was like the straw that broke the camel's back. I've, I've been following, as I'm sure you do, a lot of internet skepticism and what are the what are the critics saying? And that kept coming up over and over again. The Gospels are anonymous. Mm-hmm. That makes it sound like we have zero idea who wrote them. Oh, yeah. And, and even people like Bart Ehrman, I think, really take a dive on that by saying, we don't know who wrote them. They're written yeah. far away from, you know, this is, you know, I point out in the book that, that there is zero tradition of anybody other than Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John writing these Gospels. So, uh, if if these, in fact, had been written by someone other than the traditional authors, then someone explained to me why you would pick someone like Mark to put a, append his name to the second gospel or pick someone like Matthew, who is a tax collector and a minor player. Tax collectors were not well received. He's a minor player amongst the disciples. Why in the world would you pick someone like him compared to Peter or James. So it makes zero sense to say that these are anonymous and then because you still have to explain that how did these names affix to them? And so that's just at the sheer logical level that it, it, to think of Mark writing a gospel, uh, but not Peter or James doesn't make any sense. But then we just have to go to the historical record to find out that both within the gospels, at least as far as Luke and John, you've got some evidence. So authorship and Luke the gospel that we attribute to Luke is dedicated to the same person as the book of Acts. And it seems pretty clear that the book of Acts, 
uh, actually was volume two of Luke's treatise, and he talks about the former treatise I wrote to you, Theophilus. And so we have Luke Acts, probably was too long to put in one scroll, so Luke cut it in half and made one the Gospel of Luke and the other the birth of the church, the book of Acts that mm-hmm. talks about how the apostles, the church began, etc., etc. Also internally within the Gospel of John, you've got uh, the writer talking about how he's an eyewitness, and uh, it makes reference to the disciple whom Jesus loved, who seems to be the very one who's doing the writing, referring to himself in that fashion. So you have that internally. Uh, now, a lot of people say that the original copies of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John didn't contain the names of the writers. Well, that's an argument from silence. I could say, well, yes, they did, and no one could prove me wrong. But here's a, a point that I didn't realize till I did the research for this book, Nick. Mm-hmm. Every copy of the Gospels that we possess today that has the first, the beginning portions of the Gospels will have the name of the writer, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. There's no manuscripts of the Gospels that contain the first portion that omit the writer being Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. So to say that the originals did not have their uh, authors listed, and that's a later development, total argument from silence, and in many ways flies in the face of the evidence, because we have no gospel accounts that contain the first portions, even our oldest manuscripts that do not list Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John as the authors. There are so much there I, I want to say something about, not bad stuff, I agree a bit, of course, that... I mean, for instance, uh, you know, about why would they choose these names? John is the only one that would make sense to really choose for names, since he's a pretty prominent figure. And interestingly, John is the only one of the church fathers did have some dispute about the author. They didn't doubt that it was John who wrote it, but they wondered, is this John the Elder or John the Apostle? Right. Right. That, that's interesting. He is, and John the Apostle, of course, being the most likely candidate since he was an eyewitness. But so, so we go to the history uh, and the early church, and we'd see that around the year AD 110, mm-hmm. uh, Papias, who was a hearer of John, a disciple of John, uh, Papias tells us that Matthew wrote his Logia, which we presume he's talking about the gospel account. He wrote his Logia in Hebrew. Now, we probably we think that he probably was referring to Aramaic, and we, and we don't have any copies of the Gospel of Matthew in Aramaic. So it could have been a proto-Matthew, for all we know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but nonetheless, he attributes a gospel to Matthew the disciple, and he attributes Mark's gospel to Peter, and that Mark wrote down the recollections of Peter. And again, uh, why would somebody make this up? Mark is not somebody who has a, uh, a a perfect track record. He was actually the source of division between Paul and Barnabas, and they ended up having two separate missionary journeys as a result of, of John Mark. Yeah. Uh, although then they reconciled, and it turned out fine. But why would you have Mark, a non-eyewitness, being attributing, attributing the gospel to him if, in fact, uh, Peter was an eyewitness, because that's how it happened. If you were making this stuff up, Nick, you'd say, this is the gospel of Peter, or this is the gospel of Mark who was an eyewitness. Neither of those true. It was mm-hmm. actually the recollections of Peter as given to Mark and recorded by Mark. And most scholars today 
although there's there are quite a few that dissent would say that Mark probably wrote his gospel first, the other option being Matthew having written his gospel first and relying on Papias for that. So Papias makes it pretty clear right around the turn of the first century, just after the turn of the first century, that Matthew and Mark are written by the traditional authors. As far as the earliest attestation, specifically to Luke and John, you go to Irenaeus around A.D. 160, 170, who references Luke writing Luke and uh, John writing John. But again, there's quotations from early church fathers up to that point. There are some other evidences that I give in the book where I talk about these uh, anti-Martianite prologues, which basically were uh, at the beginning of each gospel— Marcion was a heretic who was trying to really undermine Christianity with a, a cultic spin on it. And these are written probably 80, 150, 160, and they are found at the beginning of the Gospels that attribute the Gospels to the traditional writers. And then you've even got, uh, for example, Tatian, who wanted to do a harmony of the Gospels. And so Tatian wrote a, a volume called through the four, called the Dia Tesseron, which means through the four writers, and he only uses the canonical Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and he's writing about the mid-2nd century, and we even have a confirmation from the earliest list of documents of of the New Testament uh, writings called uh, the Miratorium Canon, canon there meaning the standard of the rule, and the, the Miratorium Canon comes from a list done probably about the year A.D. 170, and it lists, even though the beginning of it's mutilated, you can tell from it there are four Gospels. It confirms Luke and John, and it seems very clear, though, that he's highlighting that everyone accepted only four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So that's why later in the book I address the issue of lost Gospels, but it's pretty clear from the early church testimony, from Tatian as Diatessaron, and so many other angles that there were only four historical accounts, contemporaneous, contemporaneous historical accounts of the life of Jesus, and that's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Yeah, something I like to point out also, it's not like, let's imagine this hypothetical church in Antioch. It's a pretty sizable church. And one morning, the, the, the elder, whoever it is in charge of the church, gets up, opens the door, church, and lo and behold, there was a scroll right there, and it's one of the Gospels, and he just opens up and says, hmm, I don't know who this is from, but looks good, let's use this. That does <laughs> not happen. Whoever would have got the scroll, they would have known who it was from. I mean, it, it, no, one, it, no one delivering the scroll would say, when we was asked who sent us, uh, I don't know. I just thought I'd bring it over here. It would it would have been known who what who the source was. I, I agree, Nick. And there's a really good book out by um, uh, I think of his name here, uh, Michael Kruger, called "The Question of Canon." He wrote that in 2013, and he's a great evangelical scholar, and he deals with this same issue that the early church would not have accepted accounts of Jesus unless they were authoritative. And by authoritative, it had to be written by an apostle 
or someone with close connection to an apostle, just like Luke had close connection to the apostle Paul, interviewed eyewitnesses, which probably included uh, apostles. Uh, so you, you've got that kind of testimony. You've got the testimony that Mark wrote the recollections of Peter. So there you've got an apostolic account as given to Mark. So if it's anonymous, it's not going to be accepted. And if it is anonymous, you're not going to affix the names Matthew or Mark or possibly even Luke, a Gentile, unless they actually wrote these. So those are the types of lines of reasoning that you use in a courtroom to show that we have, by the preponderance of the evidence, if not by clear and convincing evidence, and at some level even beyond reasonable doubt, that the best argument for who wrote these Gospels would be Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So I tell people that, that after studying this for decades and doing my scholarly research, I've come to the conclusion the Gospels were written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, that doesn't sound earth-shattering to someone who's been brought up in the church, but to the secular person who's been looking at the Internet, it's like, seriously, they were actually were written by the traditional authors. And then one last thing, Nick, and I quote uh, the, the Christian apologist William Lane Craig, because William Lane Craig, when asked the question, like, who wrote the Gospels, his response is, and it has to be qualified, he says, who cares? As long as it's reliable historical, then it really doesn't matter. And so I pass that along to say that he's trying to make a point. He's not saying that nobody cares. But what he's saying is, even if you can't conclude that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John wrote these accounts, you can still look at the kernels of historical, reliable truth within them to make the case that Jesus is the Messiah who lived, died, and rose from the dead. And his point's well taken. You don't need to try to defend you know, every jot and tittle and every letter uh, and even the authorship of the writers is it's not a pass or fail, all or none issue. Mm-hmm. Although I think, as I point out in the book, you can make a great, compelling case for the traditional authors. And we need to revisit that. Let's not concede early on, well, we don't know who wrote them. And I quote in there in my book, uh, Craig Blomberg, who I think is a great scholar. And Craig Blomberg says that you can say the Gospels are technically technically anonymous, and his point being that unlike Paul, who writes in his letters, Paul the Apostle to the church at Corinth, blah, 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 the Gospels don't contain it at the beginning. So only in that narrow sense are the Gospels technically anonymous, that within the text of the Gospels, it doesn't say who wrote them, but again, circumstantially, we can see that Luke wrote Luke, John wrote John, just for internal evidence and and. Uh, you know, that type of, uh, of approach, uh, not even bringing into account what the early shirt said about it. So keeping all that in mind helps push the case forward. Hey, I've got your book right here. I'm pretty sure in the main body of a text of a book, you never state that you are the author of that book. I don't remember ever reading that. Uh, you know, it, it could be that uh, it's a third-hand account. It could have come through oral tradition. <laughs> And somebody appended John Stewart's name on it, knowing that he's this careful biblical scholar. That's a really great point, Nick. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm going to use that. Thank you for that. Mm-hmm. By the way, although it does say on the cover, but if you rip the cover off and and the uh, take away the title page, then people may wonder, well, how do you really know he wrote this? Mm-hmm. And and I'll 
I'll bet you a skeptic could come up with 12 reasons, you know, why I didn't write this book. Uh, and, of course, it would be nonsense. Reminds me of the story about Morton and McGregor who wrote a book on how Paul really didn't write his epistles, that they're actually written by like seven different authors. I think it was five different authors. And some uh, divinity students, I think it was actually from Harvard, put the, the and, he, and he, they did it on stylistic grounds, saying Paul's writings are so different when he writes this one, let's say the, the, to the Colossians versus Romans, that no way could the same person have written all these. And so they did it based on a stylistic analysis and vocabulary. And so Morton McGregor thought they'd really made a point that you can't trust Paul's writings because we don't know. There's probably five or six people who wrote them. Well, some divinity students put the beginning of Morton and McGregor's book, their preface in their first two chapters into a computer. And based on statistical analysis, determined seven people wrote his introduction in the first two chapters. <laughs> so it shows that statistical analysis uh, has to be qualified, and the old saying is, figures don't lie, but liars figure. So we got to be careful when we do this vocabulary analysis. I, I don't know about you, Nick, but I write my love letters a lot different than I write my master's thesis and term papers. Uh, so yes. when when you're writing for, at a, for a particular point of view, for a particular reason, I think each gospel has their own unique way an audience that they're writing to, you're going to write in a different style. And they use their own vocabularies and their own styles and their own emotions come forth from that. And that's just you know part of uh, analyzing the text itself. Mm-hmm. And one other thing, in my entire book, I do not discuss the question of inspiration. I happen mm-hmm. to believe the Gospels are inspired by God, that the writers were inspired. Holy, Holy Spirit superintends. But I don't need to use that any more than in a courtroom. I have to appeal to a higher authority being God. I can appeal to the evidence as it is. So I think you can make a case to, to someone who may even have a naturalistic or anti-supernatural bias that the historical reliability can be determined based on the evidence. You don't have to jump to uh, theism. You don't have to leap to supernatural explanations. We're just talking about the text itself. Now, when you bring in that Jesus promised that he would bring, the Holy Spirit would bring things to the remembrance of the disciples, I think there's actually evidence there that we should expect some level of inspiration of these writings. But I don't address that in the book because that's not the point. It's, are these Gospels accurate historical accounts of the life and teachings of Jesus? And the conclusion is absolutely yes. You know, I also think it's important when I talk about these kinds of things, because I think skeptics put the New Testament to a totally different standard than they do any other ancient work, period. And you know they were in my father-in-law's done a whole lot of research on Plutarch. And what he's told me is that the reason we know who wrote Plutarch is because his grandson said so years later, several, several years later. It's not because of what's in Plutarch, and so... I don't really look. A lot of writings in the ancient world are anonymous. A whole lot of them. But yep. many of these, are, the authorship is not held in doubt by scholars, even when they are anonymous. Well, yeah, I think are, I mentioned that. I think it's Tacitus. Histories is, is anonymous. It's a great example. And he's early second century, probably the best Roman historian of the first century. 
And his uh, histories don't contain his name. And we don't have any account or reference to him uh, writing these for about 60 or 80 years after he actually wrote them. But no one doubts that Tacitus, whether Tacitus wrote these. It's, it's, it's understood. So you're right, Nick. Why like different weights and measures? Why would you apply a different standard of the Gospels? And it seems like sometimes our secular critics have their thumb on the scale. And we need to point that out. And as I also like to point out, I just taught a class on apologetics two weeks ago up in Oregon at Multnomah Seminary, and I was telling them that make sure you realize when we're making a case for the reliability of the Gospels, once we've made an affirmative case, what happens in the courtroom is now the burden shifts. And the burden shifts to those who would question or dispute to come up with equal or greater evidence to try to push the, the, the verdict back the other direction. So it's not entirely up to the Christians to make every case. Once we've made our case, it's up to the critic to either accept what we've said as being the truth, that's the verdict, or give us better reasons mm -hmm. why our evidence is faulty or flawed or that they have somehow uh, more compelling evidence. So remember to shift the burden to the skeptic once you've made your prima facie, as we say, on his face case, that you can trust these accounts as being reliable history. Uh, another objection that gets brought, and this is one that we can understand even in today's day and age, is we're told, you know, the Gospels, thereby people who were followers of Jesus, who believed Jesus was the Messiah, and therefore they're biased. And we can understand the claims of bias. I mean, we live in an age of political news. We want to try and go to the least biased source possible. So since we want to avoid biased sources, should we be concerned about this? <laughs> I'm going to go back in history. There was a tennis player by the name of John McEnroe. Mm -hmm. And John McEnroe was the best tennis player in the world for some period of time. I think he probably won at Wimbledon and uh, other places. John McEnroe was the best tennis player in the world, but he was also a jerk. <laughs> and people recognize that. In fact, now they even do commercials playing on that spoof because he recognized he was a jerk. So the fact that I believe John McEnroe was the greatest tennis player does not mean I'm biased toward him because I also think he's a jerk. But based on observation, objectively, you can look at how he played and that he was awarded or given that award. So just because you have looked at the evidence and come to a conclusion doesn't make you biased. It means you're informed. So mm -hmm. as we take a step back, how do we know then, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, how do we know that their accounts can be relied upon because they were obviously followers of Jesus? So whether you want to call it confirmation bias or whatever you want to call it, how do we know that they told the truth? And interestingly enough, Nick, the the approach to addressing this was given to us by a rank liberal theologian. Mm. None other one of the co-founders of the Jesus Seminar, Robert Funk, determined this criterion called the criterion of embarrassment. And that is, if a historical account has embarrassing details included about the main characters, that tends to show the writers were telling it like it is, instead of a sanitized version or fiction. And so if you find the main characters where there are derogatory things about them, uh, things they've done that are embarrassing, that criterion of embarrassment says that's 
indicia or an indication of authenticity and honesty as opposed to bias. So we ask the question, what do you find in the Gospels? And if these were written, let's say Matthew's Gospel, let's take, let's take Mark's Gospel, who wrote the Recollections of Peter. What do you find in that Gospel? You find Peter uh, denying Jesus three times. Now, Nick, that's not mm-hmm. stuff you're going to make up if it didn't happen that way, because mm-hmm. you're going to want to make Peter seem to be a hero and brave and all that. And he was relatively brave in the Garden of Gethsemane, kind of stupid, but brave by pulling out his fisherman's knife and wanting to take on the Roman battalion that was there to arrest Jesus. But let's let's go a little bit forward, because now you've got uh, the next day at the crucifixion, Something that no man I've ever met in my life would have written as a fictional account. And that is when you're the person you've been following for three years is being crucified. You're not there, but women are there. The men would not stand for that for a moment. But what do we find in the gospel accounts at the crucifixion of Jesus at his cross in defiance of the authority of Rome are three women and one disciple, John. The other disciples had scattered. Now, unless that's true and how it happened, no one is going to make that up. The, if the men would have made a fictional account of this, they would have had, oh, we were there at the cross and the Romans had to carry us away. They dragged us away from Jesus. Didn't happen that way. The women were there and only one disciple was there. That's very embarrassing to the macho male ego, but that's how it happened. Otherwise, they wouldn't have written it that way. And then even look at Jesus, the accounts where they've questioned whether he's casting out demons by the prince of demons, whether, in fact, uh, he's a a drunk, uh, whether he was born illegitimately, uh, as the Talmud later said, he was the the bastard son of a Roman soldier and Mary. And that's uh, insinuated in one of the gospel accounts. We know who our father is. I think it's in uh, John. Yeah. So. uh, that would be highly embarrassing and if you're just making this stuff up you don't put that stuff in but if you're telling the whole story both the good and the bad the beautiful and the ugly you put it all in there and that's what we find in the gospels we find just like the entire bible i mean it really has some godly people doing a lot of ungodly things and you've a lot of failures in there so the criterion of embarrassment is the greatest argument against the question of bias and the claim that somehow the gospel writers gave us a sanitized version. No, they didn't, or they would have made themselves look brilliant, but instead they looked like Luddites. They were just uh, people who couldn't understand Jesus. He had to say, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? In the Garden of Gethsemane, he tells them three times, watch and pray. What happens? They fall asleep. So to me, the text of the Gospels alone is a sufficient account to show that all truth is presented there, the good and the bad. Now, John does tell us in his gospel that if he had recorded and passed along everything Jesus said and did, using a little hyperbole, he said the whole world couldn't even contain the books. The point being, he has given us an edited account, but it's a true account, and he's given us what we need to know to convince the reader that Jesus is the Christ. But in those accounts, again, there's still both the good and the bad. They're, the disciples did some good things, but they did some dumb things. Mm-hmm. Jesus is, is brilliant, but yet his detractors 
it's recorded how they defame him and how they accuse him of being a false prophet, all these other things. So that criterion of embarrassment is a, a great way to deflect and defeat any argument regarding uh, bias on the part of the disciples. Yeah, some other aspects I was thinking that you didn't mention, and Mark as well, is Peter, you know, the, the great Peter is the one who recognizes that Jesus is the Messiah, and this is revealed from God. Yay, Peter! How awesome! And the next thing that Jesus drew him is, get behind me, Satan! I mean, that's the, the <laughs> kind of thing you, you Mark would probably go to Peter and say, yeah, Peter, go, go Mark, Mark, you, you want to leave that thing out where Jesus called me Satan? I'd prefer her war not know that. Or even something for Jesus. <laughs> That's exactly. Yep. Or even two things about Jesus that could be seen as shameful. Well, think about it today, Nick. Let's say you're doing a radio interview and somebody says, look, I want to interview Nick. He's this great Christian apologist. And in the process, uh, they ask you something, and then you make some statement that, let's say, is a joke offhand. Oh, but don't include that in there. Oh, no, I'm going to put that in there. Hey, nothing like that has happened here because everything that happened that is relevant, good and bad, is within those accounts. The, the disciples, the gospel writers, if they had any idea that we need to edit this to make everybody look good, doesn't exist. When you read the accounts, it is the unvarnished truth about what happened with Jesus, with his disciples, and his enemies, and some of his enemies uh, turning around and becoming followers of Jesus. And I think that it's exciting to see that within the text of the Gospels. And there's two things that would be shameful to Jesus, I can think of right off in the account of Mark. One is when he has a blind man come to him for healing, and Jesus touches his eyes and such and says, do you see? And he says, well, I see people, but they look like trees walking around. You don't want to, I mean, Jesus touches them a second time and things are normal, but you don't want to include that because that could give Jesus kind of a reputation as a pseudo-healer of sorts because, you know, the true healer would get it right the first time. That's the first thing. The second thing is one that's blatantly right in front of our face and we miss it so many times because we've grown up hearing the story so much. And that's Messiahs don't get crucified. Yeah. Yeah. Cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. And that's quoted. And so is Jesus cursed? And in fact, I, I debated a Muslim about a year and a half ago in Lagos, Nigeria. And I wrote a book about that called uh, More Than a Prophet, The Identity of Jesus from the Bible, the Quran, and Early Sources. And one of the arguments of Muslims believing that Jesus is not the Son of God and he's not God is that he didn't know when he's coming back. How could God not know this? And that's what you find in the Gospels. Jesus says only the Father knows this. And when he was touched, his garment, uh, him was touched, he didn't say, you touched me. He said, who touched me? So you find these examples of Jesus who did not have uh, knowledge of certain things. And, of course, you know, Christian theologians explain how that can be based on Jesus being both God and man, but even the Muslims will raise that when they question whether Jesus, in fact, was God in the flesh. But those are accounts, if they didn't happen, if the disciples really wanted Jesus to look like God, but he really wasn't, they wouldn't put that stuff in. But that's what we have. We've got all these accounts where Jesus didn't know when he's coming back. Uh, his healing was in stages, as you say, with healing the man who first 
doesn't get it. It doesn't get it right the first time. So all this points to that conclusion: the criterion of embarrassment defeats the argument that gospel writers were somehow biased. Yeah, there's even a stronger point I think we can make that we are having this assumption that biased means unreliable necessarily, and it doesn't. You can be very, very biased towards your side, and that doesn't mean you're going to impugn it or present something false. In fact, it could mean just the opposite. It could be you're so biased towards this and you want people to have an accurate representation that you want to make sure you get it right in your presentation because you're biased. Yes, yeah, it cuts both ways. And I equated this recently to, uh, and my apologies to anybody listening in Cleveland, but uh, I think LeBron James is currently the best basketball player in the world. But I frankly didn't root for the Cleveland, and I don't particularly like LeBron James, but he's a great basketball player. So that's objective. So the fact that I would assert him, just like I talked about the John McEnroe illustration, doesn't mean I'm biased in their favor to where I'm no longer objective. It merely means I've made an informed opinion as to who's the best based on observation and evidence. And there's a difference between your opinion being based on observation, evidence, and reason versus something that is has no basis at all. In fact, that gets close to the definition of bigotry, which is holding blindly and intolerably to a point of view. And if you're blindly holding to a point of view, that, you know, that rings in bigotry. But bias really does not mean an informed decision. When a jury renders a verdict of guilty or not guilty, no one stands in the courtroom and says, you're all biased. No, they've just got through hearing all the testimony, all the admissible evidence, and they came to their conclusion based on that. That's not bias. That's a verdict based on evidence. And that's what the Gospels present to us. It presents evidence. And as a result of this evidence, we need to draw conclusions. And the bias of the writers, is it's not there. And it's important to know in the ancient world as well that People are more interested in disinterested history. People are more interested in histories where people were invested in it. They had a passion about what they were writing about. And you know, it's still the same today. I, you were just talking about LeBron James and such. You're not going to go to my blog and hear all about basketball, for instance. Because I don't care a rip about it. It doesn't mean anything to me. I am not a sports fan there. And so if you want to see something here from me on sports, you're going to miss it. I mean, you could ask, who's, who do you think is the best basketball team out there? I could give an opinion, but it's going to be totally uninformed. I'll just be thinking of some other thing. But I could say, well, you know what? My opinion's not biased, at least. And yeah, it's not biased, but... It's completely uninformed. There's no reason you should listen to it whatsoever. Indeed, Nick. And, and I, I appreciate uh, my friend Gary Habermas when he talks about, yeah. for example, the Apostle Paul being in the right place at the right time where he gets to talk to Peter and James in Jerusalem and then John in Jerusalem, or actually Peter and John and James also in Jerusalem. Uh 
right place, right time. These are the people whose opinions ought to count because they were there. And when you look at how at least some of the disciples gave their lives to pass this message on to us, I, I think their opinion carries a lot of value. And you have historical precedent of people who are historians, but they are somewhat, uh, let's say, less than objective in some areas. And a good case in point is Josephus. He is known to be a relatively reliable historian, but there are places where he embellishes the accounts. He clearly does. He makes himself out to be the hero, but we caught him in that. It's pretty easy objectively to look at that, but that doesn't negate everything he says. So when he does make other historical references, uh, he's typically a lot more cautious just like Tacitus, who was very careful to make sure that when he writes about something, he either says, it's been told to me if it's secondhand, or he won't say that because he's investigated it and he concludes that it's actually true the way he reports it. But even someone like Josephus uh, has his biases, but it doesn't negate the thrust of what Josephus is telling us in his histories and his antiquities. So Keeping that in mind, even those who say, well, you know, they're still biased, they follow Jesus, well, that doesn't negate the, the core of the gospel accounts. Jesus lived, died, and rose from the dead. So if you want to quibble on a detail, hey, let's move on to the, the, the key elements. And there's unanimous, unanimous agreement on those key elements that Jesus claimed to be Messiah, claimed he was going to die on a cross for the sins of the world, and claimed the proof of his Messiahship ultimately would be his resurrection from the dead. And the accounts indicate that he did, in fact, do that. But even before the resurrection, I go to the account in Matthew 9 that's repeated in Luke 5 and Mark 2 about the man who was born paralyzed and his friends who bring him to Jesus to be healed. And Jesus tells him, your sins are forgiven. And the, the audience was aghast. And some of the Pharisees were thinking, who can forgive sin but God? This man blasphemes. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, asks a very great question. Well, what's it easier for me to say to this man? Your sins are forgiven or rise up and walk? Well, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because you can't empirically verify whether sins get forgiven. It's in a spiritual dimension. So Jesus says, so you may know the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, rise up and walk. And now I'm not a poker player, but I understand in poker that's called going all in. Jesus put all his chips on the table and says, rise up and walk. And when the man did, that is empirical, verifiable, observable evidence that he has special powers, and it's not a leap of faith to say that, therefore, based on that ability, he must have spiritual power in the dimension or realm that we cannot verify, and he can forgive sin. In the same way, if you think about Jesus dying on a cross, hey, Thousands of Jews died on crosses in the first century. Why is the death of Jesus any more significant? Because he said he was going to die for the sins of the world, and he said he would rise from the dead as evidence of his death on behalf of all people. So that's why it was a special event based on the evidence that he rose that brings the spiritual dimension that he died for the sins of the world, brings that home and it makes that a reasonable conclusion that if this man can rise from the dead, then whatever else he said is true. And that's how we use Jesus and his resurrection to argue for so many of the uh, events of Scripture being true and reliable. Yeah, and I'd be amiss if I didn't mention also as well that uh, we're often told that Jews 
have the very best Holocaust museums out there today, but I think we could all agree Jews are very, very biased in their approach. The uh, yeah, the Holocaust Museum, Yad Vashem in Israel, I've been there, and it's uh, very eye-opening to realize that this is like Haman of old. Hitler was has a prototype in uh, history where people want to try to destroy God's chosen people. And you go through that, and can you say, well, you know, this is from the Jewish perspective. Uh, look, that's... Those are the pictures. Those are the events. And just because these are survivors who pass these along, who believe the Holocaust happened, doesn't make it biased. It makes it historically reliable because it's been investigated and supported. So, yeah, I think I think the more the more we give the evidence and the reasons why there is no bias, the clearer the picture becomes, Nick, that these accounts can be taken at face value as having happened just the way they were reported. Well, I'd like to remind everyone now that you're listening to the Deeper Waters podcast. I've got John Stewart from Mashio Christie with me today, talking about his book, In Defense of the Gospels. But if you're here next week, we're going to be talking about Mormonism again. And I've got on with me next week Eric Johnson, co author with Sean McDowell of the book, Sharing the Good News with Mormons. So we'll be talking with him about how to spread the gospel with Mormons. Now, John, you've been talking about the Gospels, and I've been talking about you over and over, but we've been talking about four books. Don't you know there are several, several Gospels out there, and the church just picked the ones that they wanted out of all of these, because, you know, history is written by the winners. <laughs> yeah, we can learn a lot from Dan Brown and the Da Vinci Code. I, it was great to find out that there were more than 80 Gospels were being considered by Constantine, and he decided which books went in, which Gospels were. That is such nonsense. Mm-hmm. I put that in the book just for a laugh. Uh, historically, there are no other contenders, really, for being reliable accounts of Jesus' life. So... The question arises, what about the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Mary, and all these other so-called Gospels, and where did all these come from? And so what I like to say on the front end is this. There's a breakfast cereal that I used to eat a lot of, actually liked it, called uh, Grape Nuts. Mm -hmm. If you look at the cereal Grape Nuts, Grape Nuts is neither grapes nor is it nuts, In the same way, the lost Gospels are neither lost nor are they Gospels. They were actually fictional accounts that were written after the time of Jesus that were discarded, found in garbage dumps in Oxyrhynchus and Egypt and uh, in the late 19th and mid-20th centuries, and basically written, most of these, by people who were part of a cult called Gnosticism and who came up with fanciful, fictional accounts of Jesus. And so I quote some of the leading scholars to say that these so-called lost gospels, they add not one verifiable uh, historical fact to the life of Jesus. So these are really more for entertainment purposes. In fact, Nick, I think some of these so-called lost gospels, we think about the infancy gospels where Jesus does these miracles as a child uh, to show off to his friends, makes his mud pie birds fly away. Uh, 
these could have been pious fiction written as a substitute or alternative to some of the dime store novels that were circulating, that were salacious and sexualized. So in other words, to give Christians something, some fictional accounts to read that would keep them away from the less than edifying sexual novels that existed in the second, third, or fourth, fifth century. So some of these may have been intentional accounts just to tell stories uh, fictionalized accounts as a substitute for that, but a lot of these were, in fact, accounts by Gnostics, Gnostic accounts to, to make Jesus into their idea of what he really was, and none of these, by the way, make any reference to Jesus being married to Mary Magdalene, uh, mm-hmm. but there a couple of these, these lost, so-called lost gospels have some things that have been extrapolated or bootstrapped by people like Dan Brown and the Da Vinci Code to try to make that connection. That's a bunch of nonsense, and it's essentially done to sensationalize so that their Nat Geo or uh, production on television will be watched. They'll talk about, oh, the Gospel of Judas, it's been suppressed. And so it's a nonsense. These things are written sometimes three, four hundred years after Jesus. They tell us nothing new about Jesus. They were never accepted by the church, and they belonged in the garbage dump where they were found. So when you think of lost gospels, think of grape nuts. They're not lost and they're not gospels. They're just later either fictional accounts or intentionally uh, changed accounts by enemies of Christianity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I uh, often tell people, like, if you want to know why these gospels aren't in the canon— Here's a little piece of advice. Go read them. Yeah. And I think... I, I, I mentioned earlier... Yeah, go ahead. No, you go ahead. I mentioned earlier Michael Kruger and his book. If people want to study the canon in depth, I would recommend his book, The Question of Canon, mm-hmm. InterVarsity Press, came out in 2013, and I reference it in my book. And that will go into all the various details about why Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John uh, are the only reliable historical accounts of Jesus, and even why the uh, the rest of the New Testament, the other 20, uh, four, 23 books are reliable, uh, and how the early church actually discovered, not not determined, but really discovered what the authoritative books were, what the criteria were. But when it comes to the Gospels, we're in pretty safe territory here because none of these, with the possible exception of the Gospel of Thomas, but none of these really purport to be by any scholar in uh, first century or even up to the middle of the second century documents. So way over a hundred plus years after the time of Jesus. So they're not eyewitness accounts. They're not written by the people they're claimed to be written by. So when it says gospel of Thomas, it's a forgery. We call that a false writing or false is pseudo in Greek and writing is graphic. So it's a pseudepigraphon. If you want the $10 word, these are just forgeries where people, to communicate their writings, they had to put the name of someone important on so that so someone would read them. Because if someone's name was, you know, Hector, who lived in the second century, the gospel according to Hector, always going to read that. But hey, let's put the name of Nicodemus on it or 
Pontius Pilate. We even have you know an account of Pontius Pilate from like the fifth century that somebody wrote and created, uh, or Thomas, or the Gospel of James, and all this. But these were not written by the people who they're claimed to be written by, so they're forgeries. They're written well over 100 years after the time of Jesus. And I like, uh, I, I, I quote extensively from a scholar who's now at, uh, I think, teaches with uh, Mike Lacone at Houston Baptist, uh, Evans, Craig Evans. Yeah. And I think he's a, a wonderful, wonderful scholar. And Craig Evans uh, points out those who, like Elaine, K, uh, what's her name? The uh, Harvard professor? Elaine Pagars. Oh, uh, I can't think of her. Elaine Pagars. Yes, thank you. Pe- yes, that uh, Pagels. I was thinking of Elena Kagan, the Supreme Court Justice. <laughs> uh, a, a senior moment. Uh, but how uh, Craig Evans points out that all the evidence points to even the Gospel of Thomas being at the earliest, probably mid-second century. So really having no... Uh, scholarly values being uh, authoritative or being telling us new things about Jesus and certainly being the gospel of Thomas is really just a bunch of sayings of Jesus. There's no narrative. It doesn't, it's not all tied together. Uh, The last of those 117 or 118 sayings is really this bizarre one about where Jesus said, any woman who becomes a man can enter the kingdom of heaven. Just nonsense. He would not find in in the true gospels. So those who argue for the gospel of Thomas having some claim to authenticity, no. And I think people like Craig Evans has put that to rest and there's nothing else that even comes close. Everything else is mid to late second century at the earliest. And many of them third, fourth, fifth century forgeries that make for great stories on television, gospel of Judas type of stuff. When people sensationalize it and say Christianity has suppressed the truth for all these years, here's the gospel of Judas. But it's just nonsense, and no scholar would countenance that for any length of time. Uh, I think it's worth being mentioned to by Islam some that some of these stories could have affected Muhammad as well, since I believe they show up in the Quran as well. Well, in my book I wrote last year, uh, In Defense of the Gospels, I actually have an entire chapter on the Gospel of Barnabas. Mm-hmm. So if people want to get that book, it's available on Amazon, called More Than a Prophet. And Muslims will point to the so-called Gospel of Barnabas, which there actually was one that likely was written in the uh, early to mid-second century. But the, the ones that the Muslims will put forward was clearly written by a Muslim sometime after the time of Muhammad to try to read back into the the lives of the apostles or people who lived in the first century, all the things that the Quran teaches that are inaccurate historically and are contrary to Christianity. So the Gospel of Barnabas is a great example. I don't go into great detail in my book in defense of the Gospels about the Gospel of Barnabas, but my book from last year, More Than a Prophet, does have a whole chapter on that. Because if you're going to talk to a Muslim, if they've listened to any uh, at any length of time to their imams and their sheikhs, that might come up if they've done some of their homework. But you can defeat that rather quickly. And I don't think any serious Muslim scholar who really knows his or her stuff 
would use the gospel of Barnabas as a source of any type of truth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think this would also be a good time to mention that we've talked about some of the fantastic stories in these lost gospels and such, and some people say, where there are fantastic stories in the canonical gospels as well. I mean, shouldn't we view that with suspicion? Well, you know, the, the Gospels, one of the reasons why a lot of people have trouble with the Gospels out of the gate is because there are accounts of miracles. And if you're a total naturalist, uh, philosophically believe there's no supernatural, if you're of the David Hume ilk, well, no wonder you're going to have trouble. And if someone has an, an assumption, a priori view, that there are no such thing as miracles, then they come to a claim of a miracle and they're going to roll their eyes, not based on evidence, but based on their assumptions, their presuppositions, their worldview. And so, uh, as the historian Ethelbert Stauffer has said, for the honest historian, uh, nothing is impossible. You have to look at the data and consider the data and what do they say. And so, yeah, we have miracle accounts in the Gospels and we have miracle accounts in these infancy gospels and and these so-called lost gospels as well, and are they the same? And the answer is no. What you find in the infancy gospels are these contrived accounts where Jesus, as a child, is doing miracles for no purpose other than to impress people. You look at the miracles in the gospels, and Jesus does them for two reasons. One is to prove he's the Messiah, and he's doing them as an evidential basis to 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 convince the audience of who he is, and secondly, out of compassion. But you have these these mud pies, that the birds that Jesus makes as a baby, makes them fly away in these infancy gospels. I mean, some of this is just fanciful. You know, it's, it's like parlor games and jokes and things. Uh, they're not on the same level, so you don't you don't find the same quality or purpose of the miracle. And there is, there is even a concept that I find throughout Scripture called, uh, well, I'm trying to think of the, the term for it, but it's like conservation of miracles, where you really don't see miracles being used as a sideshow. They're being used to make a point. They're not like magic shows to entertain. They're there to make a point or prove a purpose. And that's what you find in Jesus' miracles. Again, one, to prove he's Messiah. In fact, if you look in John chapter 11, Nick, when John the Baptist is about to have his head lopped off by Herod Antipas, and he's there uh, kind of in cage on the other side of the Dead Sea. And so he says, hey, could you send word to Jesus and ask him, are, are, are you the coming one, or should we expect someone else? Now, that's kind of an interesting statement. And uh, I think it's Matthew 11. Yeah, did I say Matthew 11? John. I said John 11? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I missed folks. Thank you. Matthew 11. And uh, so... Uh, as we look at that account, um, and I know people talk about, you know, how in the world could this have happened? Because here's John the Baptist, uh, and John the Baptist, the same John the Baptist who said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world when he sees Jesus coming, who says, He must increase, I must decrease. I'm not worthy to loosen his sandals. And here's John asking, uh, Could you please let, ask him to tell me, or are you the coming one? Now, I look at this probably as not doubt on John's part, but more of he wanted some assurance, some reassurance. And so Jesus sends word back to him by doing what? By quoting from Isaiah chapter 35. Go tell John 
And what are these miracles? The blind see, the deaf hear, the lame will walk. The very miracles that were prophesied that Messiah would perform. So when Jesus does these miracles, it's specifically to confirm his Messiahship, not to entertain people, not to have a sideshow, but to conserve these miracles to show the power of God rested in him, and he has proven his Messiahship. And so he tells John. And so I see that as a great account of even someone like John the Baptist needing assurance which tells me why evidence for Christianity, what I call intelligent faith, but the $10 word is apologetics, is for all Christians as well as non-Christians because it helps give us assurance that the faith once for all delivered is true because it's rooted in history. It's rooted in actual events that happened when Jesus lived and died and rose from the dead. So this is a good example in John John 11. You're right, I said it again. In Matthew 11, John must be on my mind, in Matthew 11 where uh, John the Baptist wants some assurance. Hey, if I knew I was going to die, what would I want to do? I'd want to be praying. I'd want to be reading something from Scripture. I'd want to have some like, hey, I want to have my ushering into the kingdom something that's that's affirmed and and gives me a peace and that's probably why it happened but i think that's a great account because jesus response shows that the miracles are the proof but these are the messianic miracles not infancy miracles making mud pies fly away no and i, I think something we also have to discuss on canon is the same tired objection we usually hear from internet atheists and such that the canon was chosen by Constantine. <laughs> you know, it's interesting when people say that. I say, you know, if you took an early church history course, and I teach early church history, I say, if you if you made that on your, put that on your test, you would fail. Because no one who has bothered to pick up any book on church history would say that the Nicene Council in, in AD 325 at to do with the Bible in terms of the canon. It had to do with the Trinity. It's a question of whether Jesus was of similar or same essence or substance as the Father. That was the focus. It wasn't until the end of the uh, the 4th century that two church councils met in Carthage and Hippo to discuss the the issue of the canon. By then it had Already, the books have been collected. Athanasius, 50 years before that, had already recited them in the same order we have them today. And, and clearly, Nick, it took time for all the books in the New Testament to circulate and be collected together. Because if until the Edict of Milan, right around the year AD 313, it was illegal to be a Christian in the Roman Empire. So it's not as if they had all the freedom to write accounts and have more copies made. They had to do a lot of this under the boot of the Roman authority that didn't like anybody claiming that Jesus was God because the emperors were worshipped as God. So if you think about that, it wasn't easy for the church to collect all of the New Testament writings that were authoritative and put them together in one collection. So it kind of happened over time. And it was in the fourth century that I think that ultimately was the the earliest consensus that, yeah, these 27 books are the ones that belong. But even early on, even within the New Testament, you see the collection procedure taking place. You see Paul saying, you know, read this epistle uh, to Laodiceans and et cetera, et cetera. So it, it was reasonable to believe that God had not only inspired our Genesis through Malachi, 
but he also wanted an authoritative account of the life and teachings of Jesus called the Gospels and those letters that tell us how to live our lives, the epistles, as well as the book of Acts, which is our church history book. And we do have the canons of accounts in ICU. They did discuss everything, such as the date of Easter and such, after the main event, and they care of it. Canon was not one of the things on the table. Yeah. Yeah, and anybody who says otherwise, just, you know, they, 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 they have the wrong half of a half-truth. It just didn't happen that way. And I don't know why people keep bringing that up, other than maybe Dan Brown has poisoned the well and made people think that Nicaea had something to do with the Gospels or the canon. It didn't. Yeah, and for anybody who thinks this kind of thing doesn't matter, I still remember hearing someone say in a Facebook group and such that, you know, what was the nail of a coffin for me in my Christian faith was realizing that the canon was chosen at the Council of Nicaea. And by the way, they even, I, they even presented me a link to demonstrate this, but it was written by Virgil Pierce. I know who he is, and he went up written like this. In fact, the very first paragraph of this link talked about how some people believe such and such about the Council of Nicaea, such as the claim being made, but these beliefs are an error. I said, this is what your very own thing that you sent me said, but there are people who leave the faith because of claims like this. Wow. Yeah. Well, there are people today that try to rewrite history, and uh, as I point out in the book, a lot of times we make reference to what scholars have said, doesn't mean it's right, but when it's, there's a scholarly consensus, then you need, need to pay attention to it. And if you can find reasons why that consensus should be questioned or modified or challenged, then do so. But you need to do it on objective and verifiable grounds rather than pure subjectivity. And I point out, for example, the, the 18th century scholar who founded the, the critical School of Theology in Tübingen, Germany, Ferdinand Bauer, mm. he concluded that kind of using the ideas of Hegel and Hegel's approach to philosophy and history of the, the dialectical approach, he concluded that whoever wrote the fourth gospel that we attribute to John was actually someone other than John writing about the mid to late second century, around the year AD 170. Now, Bauer did this not based on any manuscript evidence or any historical references. He did it solely on subjective criteria, including his belief that no one walking with Jesus, as he believed uh, John did, but John didn't write it in his opinion, no one walking with Jesus could have called Jesus God. And the Gospel of John does refer to Jesus as God. Therefore, John didn't write the Gospel. It was written well after and then following Hegel, he says, yeah, Jesus came with this nice Jewish reformation. Paul comes along and adds a Greek element and Hellenizes this Jesus movement. And then the merger of the two, the synthesis is second century Christianity. And that's what the Gospel of John is about. And that's what the book of Acts is about. Now, that's been shot down, but that was 18th century scholarship that saw this as some sort of evolution based on Jesus being the thesis, Paul being the antithesis, and then the New Testament writings being the synthesis of that. Just, mm -hmm. again, not true, not historically valid, but when somebody raises this, if somebody raises something, Nick, that goes against the grain, then we ask them, so what's your evidence for this? What's your proof? What's your... Yeah. 
and uh, let's find out. Let's let's give them a hearing and find out if their evidence is substantial. And uh, in most of these cases, again, it's you follow that rabbit trail and it essentially leads nowhere. It leads back to somebody's subjective opinion. Well, I remind everyone, now I hope I can reach your subjective opinion, that Deeper Waters is a ministry worth supporting. And if you're listening to this show, I would certainly hope you think it is, because you're getting a blessing out of it. Please consider giving something back. Please go to deeperwatersapologetics.com, my site. You'll see a link on the site to help support the work of Deeper Waters Christian Ministries. So work up. That's, you click on there and you get taken to uh, Risen Jesus. That's the ministry of Mike and Debbie Lacona. You've gone to the right place there. Those are my in-laws. If you listen to the show, you know that. I know. And you make your donation through them. And then you get in touch with Mike or Debbie or me or Allie and say, hey, I made a donation. I want to go to Nick Peters. I want to go to Deeper Waters. We will get that donation. It will be tax deductible. You can also buy some ebooks I have written, such as A Creed for the Ages, The Apostles' Creed in Today's Christian, or Co Written, Defying an Inerrancy, God and Natural Disasters, um, Groundless. Or even just released recently, and my thanks to Greg West for Poached Egg for making us one of the top ten ebooks out there. The Mitchell Boris Project, that's the projects we've done with uh, those of us who are in the projects that we think we that think that uh, seem to be worthy of a mention, but probably aren't as well known as big time names. We've got five of us working together, including me, to answer forty questions. That's a project we did. And you can also uh, buy jewelry from us. Now, John, you're a lawyer, if, and your wife's a lawyer, but if you're really losing the argument bad with her, jewelry works pretty well, doesn't it? Say again, Nick? You're a lawyer married to a lawyer. If you and your wife are in a dispute and it's not going well for you, you can change the tide a little bit in your favor with jewelry, can't you? Amen. Amen. Yes. So, so guys, women like jewelry. If you want to get something special about lady in your life, go to our jewelry store from our website. Let me know if you need some help. But if you purchase anything, 25% of what you purchase goes support deeper waters. And guys, you know the rule I told you. You can go out and you can buy something special for that lady in your life to make up that big screw up that you recently did with her. Or... You can go out and buy something special at late in your life to make up that big screw-up that you're going to make with her. And if you can't do any of these, please go on iTunes and leave a positive review of the Deeper Waters podcast. I really love to see them. Now, do you, John, do you have any uh, organization or charity that you'd like to see people donate to? Sure. First, I, I wanted to donate to Deep Waters because I think you're doing a tremendous work, Nick. You're bringing to the public, anybody who wants to tune in and, and look in your archives, some of the, the best scholarship that's out there. And so I, I commend you for this. And you've mm-hmm. got you've got a whole master's level of education. People would take the time to listen to some of these uh, and take notes uh, you, you can learn so much. I would commend uh, your ministry, Deeper Waters. 
Now, I am the uh, scholar in residence for Rasho Christie, and of course, we are a campus apologetics uh, liaison or alliance. We're really trying to reach the university. Uh, my own particular uh, ministry that my wife and I have established that we work with Rasho Christie is called Intelligent Faith. So if people want to find out more and uh, find out about where my books are available uh, or read some of my blogs or my wife's blogs, who, by the way, my wife is president of Women in Apologetics. Uh, our website is intelligentfaith.com, www.intelligentfaith.com. And so that's where I would direct them if they want to find out more about some of the things I've written, some of the things my wife and I uh, teach and places we go. And we've been blessed to be able to go all over the world. And uh, next month we'll be in South Africa. Uh, and just to bring the truth of Christianity to people who need it. And it's an exciting thing. But by virtue of the fact that your material is accessible, people all over the world can go to your website and learn a lot, Nick. So I commend you and I encourage people to support the work you do. I greatly appreciate that. And I'm not great. It's all genuine. Don't have to ask these kinds of things. I'm sorry. That comes the compliments to get. But let's get back to your book. Now, you're, we're talking about these gospel accounts that we have here, and we are making a big, big assumption about these accounts. I mean, John, don't you know the Bible has been translated over and over and over again throughout history? And, you know, you were just talking about the oral tradition where we all know how the telephone game works. Things get changed over time. So all these years and all these translations, surely we don't really have what they wrote back then. <laughs> uh, I always have to chuckle. Now, if you'd asked me like 30, 40 years ago, what are the main questions non-Christian ask, Christians will ask? This probably was one of them. Hasn't the Bible been changed over the years? It's probably one of the only surviving ones because now a lot of newer ones, like what about transgendered and all these, these mm -hmm. kind of issues. But when it comes to has the Bible been changed over the years, uh, the simple answer is no, it hasn't. And textual criticism, the art and science of reconstructing the original text of a work of which the originals are unknown, that's textual criticism. That de establishes clearly that the Gospels and the New Testament they're reliable documents. Now, how do you determine reliability? Well, first of all, let's look at this. We don't have the original works of the New Testament as far as we know. They've all been lost or destroyed or perished in some way or another. And it's only reasonable because they were written on highly perishable material called papyrus. Uh, it doesn't last very long. And only time we find old copies is when they're found in a very dry climate like Egypt. Uh, and we don't have the original copies of any works of antiquity, mm -hmm. anything contemporary with the New Testament. So if you talk about you know, the philosophers of Plato and Aristotle, or you talk about Tacitus, or you talk about uh, Caesar, n none of these works d have the original copies available. And the existing copies we do possess today come from usually eight to ten centuries after they were written. Not the New Testament, and, and and I'll get to the numbers in a second, but also the uh, the number of handwritten copies called manuscripts of these ancient writings, when you talk about something outside of the New Testament, the amount of 
copies we have, the number is very small compared to the New Testament, which is huge. By way of comparison, uh, my former classmate Dan Wallace says, the, if you stacked all of the works of antiquity up, the, the highest pile you could get from any other work of antiquity would be about four or five feet high. If you took all the copies in the world in museums, four or five feet high, the New Testament would be over a mile high. That's how many copies we have, counting Greek or copies of the New Testament and as well as uh, translation into Latin. So what you want to look at would be, number one, do you have sufficient number of copies to reconstruct the original? And number two, the copies you do possess, how close are they to this, the source when they were originally written? And when it comes to the New Testament, uh, we have a fragment of John's Gospel that's been confirmed even by skeptics like Bart Ehrman to date from around the year A.D. 125. Well, Ehrman believes John wrote his Gospel in A.D. 95, so in his mind, it's about 30 years from the pen of John. So it's not that far removed, and it did not go through 20 generations of copying, recopying, and recopying. You can't get that many generations in 20 or 30 years. So we have... Complete copies of John's Gospel and other Gospels from the end of the second century, and there's nothing in any other literature that compares to this in terms of the amount of evidence. So I call this the manuscript comparison factor. Manuscript comparison factor. You compare the amount of evidence we have of any other works of antiquity compared to the New Testament. The New Testament is more reliable than any ten pieces of literature of antiquity combined. When you talk about close to the source, the, the, our oldest copies, and the number of copies we have to examine. And one fact I point out to people is, look, when we look at the New Testament, I believe that nothing's been lost. The only possible exception might be the ending of Mark's gospel. We can put that off to another discussion if we want to. But we haven't lost anything. If anything, we have more than what we need. We have an abundance, an embarrassing wealth of evidence, as Dan Wallace says. Now, mm -hmm. let's, let's compare that to Shakespeare. Shakespeare wrote his last play right around the time the King James came out, around 1610, 1611, was when his final play, The Tempest, was written. Shakespeare wrote around 37 or 38 plays. There's some discrepancy among scholars as to what, which the number is, but let's call it 37. Of Shakespeare's 37 plays, the most famous English writer in history, how many of his plays do we have the original copies? And that's only from 400 years ago. The answer, zero. Now, of these 37 plays, of which we have no original copies called autographs, how many of them have gaps in them? The fancy word, the $10 word is lacuna, gaps, where the text doesn't have the complete uh, portion. All of them, all 37 of Shakespeare's plays have gaps. So one of the uh, grandest exercises of textual criticism is trying to reconstruct the text of Shakespeare. To be or, gee, what did he say there? Not to be? How do we know? And it's a huge discipline in England because they want to find out what did he really write? Because we don't know, because we don't have the originals. And when we re try to reconstruct the originals, there are gaps. No gaps in the New Testament. Nothing's missing. We have an embarrassing wealth of information, and the, the accounts were written close enough to the events that oral tradition did not turn these into the telephone game, where whatever originally was written or said was uh, messed up in the process, 
and our copies are, are very similar. You filter out the differences, the handwritten errors that people make in copying by hand through textual criticism, and 99% of these uh, variations in the text are slips of the pen where they change the spelling or they left out uh, a new at the end of a word, a movable new, in the, if you know Greek. Uh, some of these are, are trivial. That's why I, re- I, I cite to the 19th century scholars Westcott and Hort, and they're the ones that essentially made textual criticism and manuscript evidence a compelling discipline. And they said that the amount of significant variation in the New Testament is one one-thousandth of the text, basically 99.9% accurate is a very small portion that even has to be given serious textual analysis. The rest is well-established. And be clear that no Christian doctrine rests on any type of disputed or variant reading. And even Bart Ehrman admits that. He didn't do it in his first edition of Misquoting Jesus, but when people jumped on him about that, he put it, I think, in like page 263 in a footnote. So even in Ehrman, it appears that nothing the Christians believe is based on any type of textual question. So the text of the New Testament is well-established, Nick, well-established, and that's the result of textual criticism. Yeah, I remember some friends of mine, I, we used to post on Peter Bogosian's page, a guy who wrote the book on a manual for creating atheists, and he put up a link once to the book Misquoting Jesus, knowing we were all there and said, for Christians here, we'll never touch this one. And we got to have some friends that not only have we touched it, we've read it, and many of us have written responses to it. So here's the problems with the book. I mean, these guys present these arguments thinking we've never heard them before, and we've heard them constantly. Yep, that's true. And I call that bibliographical bigotry, uh, not my term. Someone else coined that. And that is that it seems like the secularists want to only read the anti-Christian polemics. They don't want to read the Christian's response to anti-Christian polemics or some of our classical works. Whereas I read Bart Ehrman. I used to engage when I did radio. I used to engage with, uh, what was that philosopher, Paul Kurtz. Uh, uh, I read Richard Dawkins. I read uh, the, the skeptics. I look at their websites. In fact, I get some, sometimes I learn some things from them. And I also learn how to address them because I realize what they're not getting. And some of the stuff in this book uh, that I wrote in defense of the Gospels is actually from seeing the misconceptions, if not the outright ignorance, that somehow exists on the Internet from some of these so-called skeptics or scholars. And as I point out in the book, and I didn't get this originally, in fact, I think Craig Evans references this, that some people think that somehow – hypercriticism is scholarly when in fact all that is is like holding your breath till you turn blue and you won't accept anything it's kind of like the 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 people today in in mainstream media who no no matter if donald trump did uh, you know uh, can't do anything right he'll only get criticism same way people will only criticize they will never say yeah you know that's a good point and that's just bibliographically bigoted to say that you're only going to read the skeptical stuff. No, I encourage Christians to first know the truth, but then let's read what these skeptics yeah. say. As Josh McDowell pointed out to me years ago, he said, 
Sometimes the shallowness of the critic's argument speaks louder than the voice of the Christian. When you look at some of the lame-brained explanations for why Jesus didn't rise from the dead, like the swoon theories, the, the, the shallowness of the argument of the skeptic speaks at least as loud, if not louder, than the evidence that we put forth. So if people want to hold on to their uh, unscholarly, unverified, subjective, fanciful opinions, you know, that's their, that's their prerogative, but still call it scholarship. And don't accuse the Christians of not responding to the secular accusations. We've done it over and over again. We'll continue to do it. And Scripture even tells us, hey, go out there and contend earnestly for the faith, which, by the way, Nick, is the Greek word epagonizomai, agony, with a preposition at the beginning to work as hard as possible to defend the gospel. And that's the calling for Christians and that means we need to do our homework and, and know this stuff so we can respond to the skeptic. I remember when Mike debated Bart Ehrman earlier this year. It was just very shortly before that that Bart Ehrman had released his book, his newest book, The Triumph of Christianity. And this was a theme I was very interested in. I wanted to see what he had to say about it. And I could say with confidence, before that debate came, you know, I went there and I got to meet Ehrmansum again, such I've met before at SES, but I got to go and see him, and I was able to tell him I had read his latest book already. I mean, I think I could have. I don't remember if I did for sure, but I already had read it. Now that I read it, I've written up a response to it on my blog, a review of it. And so, yeah, I definitely agree with you. We need to be reading these guys, and many times reading these guys just makes me think, Wow, if this is what the other side has, my trust in Jesus is very well placed. <laughs> Amen to that, right. Amen. And to one other thing I asked about this, whole idea about the changes in the Gospels and such, so that sometimes people come to me and say, well, look at uh, Mark, uh, John, the, the end of Mark and John 8. And he said, look, don't you see that these stories were added in later? That demonstrates the Bible has been changed. And I just kind of smile because I'm thinking, you don't really realize it, but you've proven my point here. I was just going to say, how do you know it's been added in later? The only way you can recognize additions and changes is if you have a fairly good idea of what the original said. If we didn't have that, we couldn't tell that there had been any changes going on. Well said, Nick. And it wasn't it C.S. Lewis that said, you don't know what a crooked line is till you know what a straight line is. Yeah. Or words to that effect. But you're absolutely right. That how would we know that the story of the woman taken in adultery is it may have been added on? Because we know what John originally wrote based on evidence. So that's why we can analyze that and we can reject that, which seems to have been added later on. And that happens to be uh, the pericope or the story as we say pericope fancy word for story the woman taken adultery john seven fifty three through 8 11 mm-hmm. uh it seems like that was not originally part of john when i come to that passage i i treat it as a historical event but i tell people that it, it wasn't written in john's gospel there originally in some manuscripts it appears in luke sometimes at the end of john so there's a textual issue there i treat it as a true story but I have to acknowledge textually does not belong in, from John seven fifty three through eight eleven. 
So mm -hmm. you're right. And we wouldn't know to say that unless we knew what the reliable, authentic text of John actually says. Mm -hmm. So now I think it's time we start wrapping things up. And this is time where you're going to the jury. What's your case here? How do you want the jury to conclude about the evidence? Great question, Nick. And there's so many other things that we could point to. Mm -hmm. uh, I talk about in the book archaeological discoveries mm -hmm. that have confirmed Old and New Testament gospel accounts. But let's take a step back. And this is both for the skeptic who questions the gospels or for the Christian who doesn't even know how reliable the gospels are, just takes it for granted. Let me say this. Rather than emotion, setting that aside, rather than faith, setting that aside, based on the evidence, number one, the Gospels were written at a time when eyewitnesses were still alive. And even skeptical scholars will acknowledge that. So they were written while eyewitnesses were still alive. Number two, the best evidence is they were written by the traditional authors, two of whom were eyewitnesses one who wrote the recollections of an eyewitness, and then one who was an investigative journalist, Matthew, uh, Matthew being an eyewitness, John being an eyewitness. So we have eyewitness accounts, we have investigative journalism, and we have accounts that are written while eyewitnesses were still alive. So that's the first two points. These were written based on, or written by people who did not have a bias toward Jesus from the standpoint that their work should be dis discarded, they were writing both the good and the bad. And the criterion of embarrassment tells us that these guys are telling us everything that happened. Everything that was relevant is added, the good and the bad, and the disciples don't look so good. So you've got those first three things. But also, the, as originally written, the manuscript comparison factor that I mentioned demonstrates the gospel writings have come down to us as they were written. So you're arguing with people who wrote these in the first century eyewitness accounts. History and archaeology confirm these accounts, and there are no other gospels that have been lost or suppressed. So that's the cumulative case. In, any one of which on its own would demonstrate the reliability of the Gospels. But taken as a whole, people can look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and say, these contain the very words and teachings of Jesus, the man who became flesh and dwelt among us and went to a cross, died for our sins, and rose from the dead. That's our cumulative case, and each one of those points could stand on its own, but together, to me, makes an airtight case. And I tell anybody listening, that's the jury, that you need to find out and make the verdict in favor of the Gospels telling the truth about Jesus and the truth about life. Well, John, I think you and I are both people who also have to play around and say, well, let's go with the worst-case scenario here. And I'm going to give you the worst-case scenario. There is another lawyer over there, and he has made a powerful hypothetical case that demolishes everything you've said. Therefore, let's suppose we don't have a Gospels where Christianity's done for right then, right? Well, first of all, in your hypothetical, I mean, you can hypothesize about anything. Yeah. Uh, everything's possible in a contingent universe except squeezing toothpaste back into the tube. <laughs> but you would have to, first of all, show the Gospels are written sometime after the first century mm -hmm. by non-eyewitnesses 
that have no connection to what really happened in the first century. And no scholar would say that. So you'd be flying in the face of scholarship, even skeptical scholars. I mean, you have people like Gerd Ludemann, who is an atheist. He's an atheist, but yet he believes the disciples, based on the evidence, had an experience with the resurrected Jesus. You got a Bart Ehrman who had an experience, but they were convinced was a resurrected Jesus. Well, he actually says it the way I just said it, that they had an experience. That that's according to Gerd Ludemann, that based on the evidence, they had an experience. He believes it's hallucination, but he believes they had an experience. Why? Because the evidence militates to that conclusion. This guy's an atheist, but he's objective by saying, oh, I cannot say other than the fact that the disciples really did have this experience, then he has to come up with what was the experience. But the point is, based on the evidence we have, that's his conclusion. So from the evidence we have, unless there's compelling evidence that contradicts this or counters this, we've made our prima facie case, Nick, that the Gospels are reliable, historically reliable, written by eyewitnesses, primary source documents, that have come down to us intact, and that no Gospels have been left out, and that archaeology and history confirm the substance of the text of the Gospels. That's a compelling case, and I think any honest juror with an open mind would be standing firmly on the side of, yes, my verdict is those are the actual words and teachings of Jesus. I agree with you entirely, but I am still going to say hypothetically, even if we didn't have the Gospels, would Christi- if we didn't have the Gospels, would Christianity be dead in the water right then? Well, you know what? I point out in the book that the resurrection of Jesus can be probably easier proven by using the epistles, by using the book of Galatians mm-hmm. and the book of Corinthians. And, and also, putting all this aside, I talk about, do we need to wait for the latest discovery of scholars? No, we don't. Mm-hmm. Because two things working here, Nick, when it comes to our faith in Jesus Christ. One is the knowing, and the second is the showing. We can know internally by the witness of the Spirit that Jesus is alive and he saved us. Sometimes it's difficult to show that to someone, a third party or a skeptic. So what we're talking about here is the evidence to show people the truth. But you can still know the truth even if you're not skilled or trained in how to show the truth. And I appreciate your ministry because you're giving people tools so that they can not only know but even show others why it's true. And unless people can show us, again, uh, better evidence that all this is false, we've made our case. And the case is a solid case. And I think any reasonable jury would render a verdict in favor of the Gospels being reliable. And again, we we recognize that there are people that disagree, but we, we deal with those disagreements and we believe that the evidence is compelling. Now, let's uh, go after also where we have been things. One of my favorite punching bag groups to go after and such. And I don't remember if you hear this in a book or spend much time with it, but let's go after the crowd who thinks that uh, all this is a myth because Jesus never even existed and Richard Carrier is the like, most awesome scholar out there in the war period. Yeah, the Richard Carriers. Now, my wife and I have a disagreement. Uh, she thinks, based on one of her professors, uh, she's taken her MA in apologetics at Biola, uh, thinks that the mythicists have to be 
treated carefully that, that's legitimate. I think they're fringe. I think it's a lunatic fringe. Mm-hmm. And even though there's a smart guy, uh, to me, it's case closed. To say that Jesus never existed, come on. I mean, pulling that off, the fact that we date time now, it's 2018 A.D., Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord, that's pretty good to pull off if he never existed. So to me, the, the mythicist view, how do you explain the Gospels and the rise of Christianity? And I, I, I like the New Testament scholar who said, I cannot explain the rise and growth of Christianity unless there was a, an empty tomb and an appearance of Jesus. So all the evidence supports the fact that Christianity is based on the facts of the first century, that Jesus lived, died, rose from the dead. And to have an anti-supernatural assumption like a carrier, that's fine if you want to have that. But to come up with the mythicist approach, they're flying in the face of so much evidence. Even someone like uh, John Dominic Crossan, who says one of the best established facts of history is that Jesus was crucified. That's a fatal statement to both the uh, Quran that says Jesus didn't die and to a Richard Carrier who said Jesus never lived. And this man is not an evangelical. This man's a scholar who doesn't believe in a high view of reliability of Scripture, but yet he says that's beyond question. So I don't have a whole lot more to add regarding the mythicists that they're just out on the broken limb. Okay, well, let's suppose then we get the skeptic uh, out there who's more willing to listen. So he, and he's here, heard the song and said, Yo, John, I've heard your case. I think you've made a good one, but you know, I'm not really willing to commit just yet because I need to go check this claim out. I need to go and I want to see what the other side has to say as well. What would you say to that person? What was the last thing this person was saying? What okay. did you say? So I, I, I've heard your side, but I want to go and check and pair. I, want, I need to make sure what the other side has to say as well. What would you say to them? I would encourage them to read the yep. other side and then to compare and to see who is holding the truth and who has, just like a jury would do, because you have two sides of in, in any kind of court case. And, yeah, listen to the other side. And we addressed the arguments to the other side, and we shot them down, so we want them go back and review it. Take your time, because we want people to be convinced, yeah. because the truth is there, and we don't need to back down. So, yeah, that's fair. And then people say, well, I need to look a little. I go to the book of Acts 17 on Mars Hill, and there were three types of people after the hearing Paul talk. And one was they came to Christ, and they followed Jesus there were skeptics who said uh, nonsense, but there was a third group that said, we want to hear more about this. And there may be people listening to this that they aren't quite convinced yet, Nick. And I, and I respect yeah. that. Let them continue to pursue this because I believe all truth is God's truth. They should follow the truth wherever it leads. And please consider both sides because I believe that will bring them firmly to the truth that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And I think our Christian listeners out there who want to be informed and want to be able to evangelize their friends, they need to be able to read the other side as well. Something I think is essential. If you're going to go out and argue with someone, you need to know your arguments where, yes, but you need to know theirs as well. In fact, you need to know their arguments better than they know them. I agree, and that's the service you're providing, Nick, by having these types of discussions and encouraging people to even debate these things publicly. That's why Christians are willing to debate, because we believe we have the truth and we're willing to showcase that. 
so that people can compare the arguments of the skeptic versus the argument of the Christian. Why do we have this confidence? Because we truly have investigated it, and we've mm -hmm. come to the conclusion it's true. Mm -hmm. Well, John, I don't think there's enough time to get into another topic and such. I like to let people know, as of the time of this recording, I've done a checking on Amazon just now. The book, In Defense of the Gospel, is by John Stewart, J-O-H-N Stewart. It's uh, on Kindle right now. It's nine ninety nine. Paperback is fourteen ninety nine. Now, John, do you have a, a, a website, an email, a blog, the way people can get in touch with you if they want to find out more? Sure, yeah. This is the one I mentioned earlier, intelligentfaith.com, and it can actually connect to me through the, through the website address, but that has, it'll talk about the books I've written, and some of the blogs I've done, and that my wife has done, intelligentfaith.com. Okay. Uh, do you have any final thoughts you'd like to leave today for the listeners of the Deeper Waters podcast? What's that? Do you have any final thoughts you'd like to leave for the listeners today? Oh, I would encourage them to follow the truth wherever it leads. Be informed and believe and recognize that we have this great cloud of witnesses. There's so much evidence that it almost makes it easy for me as a lawyer apologist to present an intelligent Christian faith. And the more we discover this, the more our faith is affirmed and is built. So if you need so something to affirm and expand your faith. Read these books that show all the evidence that shows that Jesus did exactly what the Gospels say he did. Well, John, I'd like to thank you for coming on here, and I hope we'll see you back here again sometime. Nick, I enjoyed the time. Blessing to you and your ministry. And again, I encourage folks to support what you're doing because you're doing a great service for both the, the, the skeptic and also the Christian, because all truth is God's truth. I uh, really appreciate it, and I like to remind everyone that next week, we're going to have Eric Johnson on here talking about his book, Sharing the Good News of Mormons. For now, I'm Nick Peters, and I'm signing off. <laughs>